Welcome to the System Speak podcast. If you would like to support our efforts at sharing our story, finding stigma about dissociative identity disorder, and educating the community and the world about trauma and dissociation, please go to our website at www.systemspeak.org where there is a button for donations and you can offer a one-time donation to support the podcast or become an ongoing subscriber. You can also support us on Patreon for early access to updates and what's unfolding for us. Simply search for Emma Sunshaw on Patreon. We appreciate the support, the positive feedback, and you sharing our podcast with others. Catherine Lee Wood is a queer, plural, gender-fluid, white, neurodivergent counselor, intern, artist, and musician. Katie is in their third and final year of graduate school at Lewis and Clark College and will graduate in June 2023 with a degree in art therapy and a certificate in eating disorders counseling. They have an undergraduate degree in psychology from Western Washington University. Currently, they are completing their graduate internship at a queer and trans-owned therapy practice that serves queer and trans youth, adults, and families. Katie lives with their partner and two fur friends in Portland, Oregon, and enjoys playing piano, drawing and sculpting, stained glass work, rock hounding, practicing yoga, playing board games, watching animated series, and gardening. We talk about all kinds of things in our conversation today, but specifically Munchausen by proxy, which Katie has been studying. For those who are not clinicians, Katie shares this. Munchausen by proxy, also known as factitious disorder imposed on another, is the condition that involves medically abusing others. On the other hand, Munchausen syndrome without the by proxy label only involves falsifying illness and or injury in oneself. This is important because a lot of survivors tend to reenact medical self-harm, but very few survivors will go on to harm others. Welcome, Katie. Yeah, my name is Katie Wood and I use they them pronouns and uh, right now I'm a student over at Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon. And um, I am interested in a lot of areas, but one of them is in survivors of Munchausen's abuse. And I think there's not a lot of research out there um, about that topic. And um, I've really been enjoying the last few years doing my own sort of armchair research and kind of compiling a lot of data and a lot of um, material for um, for different presentations that I've given, including including the one that I just gave here at um, Healing Together, which was a really awesome conference. So yeah, happy to be here and talk to you today. Where have you found the beginning of research or even to start that when there's not enough about it? You know, um, part of it was reading survivor accounts. I think that's been the most like enlightening work that I've read, but there are a lot of articles out there about mostly people who have, um, 
kind of been on the abuser side of the Munchausen's type abuse, which I'm calling medical abuse because um, the word Munchausen's, while we all know it and it kind of like um, orients us to what we're talking about, it really is talking about an abuser's experience rather than a survivor experience. So um, I'll probably be using medical abuse throughout the rest. But in any case, there's way more research about um, people with Munchausen's than people who have had suffered abuse um, by those people. I love the focus on lived experience. I think that's amazing and that you got the insight into where the focus needs to be and where healing happens or who needs healing. And and I, I love the focus of that. In case we have listeners who don't know what it is, do you want to explain the diagnosis and why you are calling it medical abuse? Absolutely. So Munchausen's is when Um, A person, usually a caregiver, but not always, um, falsifies illness, which can look like a lot of different things, in another person. So usually the research shows us that that's um, between a mother and a child, Um, but it's when somebody, for example, um, gives a child a medication that makes them sick, and then they might take them to the doctor, um, and then confuse, the doctor's all confused, doesn't know what's going on, so, you know, they're doing tests and doing treatments and things. Um, but this is kind of a pattern of behavior and it's not just limited to say giving a child a medication. There's, there's a lot of other ways that, um, that this, what this abuse can look like. And the other part of it is that a lot of times, um, when this, this, uh, when the caregiver is doing this behavior, it's usually in order to, for lack of a better word, it's like an attention seeking behavior in terms of getting attention from doctors and from Um, medical staff. So a lot of times that's kind of what the motivation for this type of behavior is for an abuser. And what is the impact on survivors? Where do you even want to start with that conversation? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's an enormous impact on survivors. There's impacts that are, you know, cover the whole biosocial, biopsychosocial spectrum. And that's, that is to say that, um, and there's also long-term and short-term um, impacts. So that could be anything from emotional impacts to physical impacts. And um, emotional impacts could look like the survivor, you know, just having trust issues and, and um, really struggling with attachment, or in particular, having really strong trust issues with themselves, like having a hard time trusting um, their own experience, given that they've kind of had this, this um, other experience overlaid on them, this kind of role of being sick. And the, there's also a myriad of physical impacts. So some, some people have lifelong impacts on their body after this type of abuse. So um, some people, you know, may be wheelchair bound or they may have like digestive issues like GERD and, and things like that for the rest of their lives. So yeah, that's, there's, it's, it, there's, a, there's way more we could talk about there, but that's kind of a, a general overview. So I myself am also a survivor of this type of abuse. And this was something that was in my family. And and that's one reason that I'm really interested in, in this area of study. And so a lot of what I have to speak to is from lived experience. And I feel like it is mostly not at all represented in, in, in the research. So what I'm about to say is, is a lot from my own experience with, with maybe a little bit of, of what I've read and what I've from what I've studied and also what I have read from other survivors. So for people who have, who are plural or who have DID or dissociative experiences, and just people in general who've been a victim of this type of abuse, I really want them to know that there are some sort of intricacies 
that they may experience within their their healing journey. And, and most often I'll be speaking about, you know, what that might look like with a therapist. There's a lot of things that we could talk about, but there is, for example, a tendency for, since if a child kind of got put into a sick role when they were young, they may have learned that that's, you know, that's the way that they get love and attention from a caregiver. And they may take that into adulthood because that's what they learned and they don't know any, any different. And that could show up in the therapy in the therapeutic relationship. And the therapist may be may or may not be aware of this dynamic. Most often, I would say they're probably not aware since there isn't training around this topic. So uh, there may be parts of a person, versions of them who take a sick type of role in therapy or believe that that's the only way that they can get love or that um, sickness equates to love or like being cared for when you're sick, which, you know, in, in everyday circumstances, it totally does. But they've been given this really awful and sick version of that. And so a lot of times there's reenacting of dynamics around the sick role. So that's one way. I don't even know what to say. There's just so much here. And I also don't want to intrude too much. So no. please, please let me know your comfort level. But what what else do you want to share? Yeah, no, and I appreciate that. I will say, too, that I've done a lot of my own healing throughout the years. And um, while I have had, uh, like many of us, some really uh, not good, very bad therapy experiences, I can say that the last few years I've had um, some some better luck than I've had in the past. And so um, the therapist I have now is really awesome, and I'm able to work through these things, and they're able to see these dynamics. And I don't know, it's, it's just a, a whole different experience. So so I guess what I'm trying to say is there's a lot of, of areas where we can run into where this is really hard within therapy and also some areas sometimes where, where some therapists do get it. So um, that's that's one thing I would share. So yeah, anything you want to ask, I, I feel like I'm in a good place to answer. And I really want people to know um, that they are not alone in this. That's a, another thing I would want people to know. I, I'm going to be honest. I have had my own therapy trauma in the past. So even trying to have the conversation, I'm feeling way more unsettled than I expected. Like, I'm okay, and we can keep talking, but I'm just acknowledging that I feel that in my body, and I can think of different listeners from the community that I know specifically who are also going to be like, whoa, therapy trauma, and the alarm's going off. Yes. Yes. What has that been like for you? I mean, at its worst, it's been devastating. You know, Emma, I was so excited to come on your podcast in part. I, I just have been such a longtime listener and including some of the phases where therapy went really badly for you or things were really hard. And um, my own journey was kind of mirroring yours. I was finding that I was having a hard time with, with my therapy at the same time. And so I just kind of want to, to put out there that like I, I know that this is not an experience that just happened to me and that this is something that happens to a lot of people and also putting out that yeah, I mean, it's just really hard. And at the same time, and I know there's people who are still going through that. Like that's that's maybe their active experience. That's, that's what's happening for them right now. And I wish I could, you know, move, move around to all of those people and help them kind of the right therapist or something. And I, I know that's not within my power, but it's kind of like what I wish I could do knowing how hard that experience is when that's happening. I did not know that you listened to the podcast. So yeah. in some ways that made me laugh and in other ways it's actually a relief because you know the backstory and yeah. so that I helps do. a little bit. Um, 
I'm so glad you wanted to come on and share, but also there's, okay, so now that I know this about you too, this is not at all where I thought we were going, but that's also what happens <laughs> on the podcast. I'm sorry. No. I, I want to back up all the way to your bio. Sure. Okay. Sounds and good. Part of that is because for listeners on the podcast or maybe at the time of recording, some of this hasn't come on yet, is about to come on, but it has started. To read your bio, I had trouble getting through it, actually. I'm I'm having trouble right now. Just a minute. Oh, my goodness. It made me cry. Your bio made me cry. What? I I know it seems silly, and I know it's just your story. But to say, this is my name. And this is who I am, and I am this, and I am this, and I am this, and I am this. And to have those pieces already untangled in your life, and Mm -hmm. to be able to just say them freely, it just made me cry. I had to record that, and then we kind of had a break between when I got your bio and we started recording this conversation. I just had to cry, because it was a beautiful thing. You have done so much work already. Oh my gosh, you're making me tear up. And um, I, this is not going to help with grounding for you, but like, I just want to say thank you for how much you have helped me untangle and find my way. Like, really listening to your podcast has been so special and meaningful for me. So, I uh, thank you, th- uh, thank you straight to you for that and, and being part of my journey in that way. Oh my goodness, <laughs> I'm just sitting here crying. I've got tears. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I will try to refocus back on our topic. That's okay. Trying to be important and and good and cathartic. So, okay. So how does someone know, just getting back to basics for listeners who maybe don't have a clinical background, how does someone know the difference between I was sick a lot or I had these actual medical issues and I didn't really have medical issues, or maybe you did and that was taken advantage of. There's that as well, I know, with some people with disabilities in the disability community. I think that's a, a, a fabulous question. And I would say that somebody who has had medical abuse happen to them, um, a lot of times there was a lot of deception involved. So most people, I will also say that this most often happened to people who are very, very young. Like I think it's something like 75% of, of um, what we know, which is very little. So these studies are kind of coming from all over the world in like tiny little spots here and there. But from what we know, it's, it's like 75% of this is happening to people who are infants and toddlers. Um, with uh, others happening to kids and teens, and also sometimes elderly folks who are being taken advantage of others. But in any case, um, it is relatively rare. It's not something that is, um, you know, happening. We don't have a firm number, but it's it's something like um, one to two in 200,000, and that might be inflating it a little bit, but um, there's also kind of a lot that we don't know in terms of people who haven't come forward or, where there's confusion, kind of like what your question is asking. So I, what I'm, what kind of, what I would say about that is in the, when we talk about a difference between just having a childhood that was full of illness, right? A lot of times somebody who um, had Munchausen's abuse happen to them, especially if it lasted after they were toddlers, there's usually some element of deception happening. So um, always on the part of the, the, abuser but also sometimes um 
what that looks like is that the users will sort of um, get the victims into kind of like a Stockholm syndrome place where they are either convincing them to that they are sick or convincing them to pretend they're sick, even if they're not. So a lot of people who have had this type of abuse happen may remember kind of sort of role playing as sick or being confused about their own health and, and whether they're sick or not. So I can't say that there's really a clear cut way for someone to, to, to look back and say either, you know, I was a victim or I was not. However, I would say that, again, this is a pretty rare thing, so it, it's probably unlikely. But if you notice that there's deception or if there's, if there's things that don't make sense about health, um, and, and I know a lot of things can, can just not make sense about health, that, that does happen, but especially in relationship to a caregiver. So if there's kind of like, I wonder what this, this thing was about, and you're not able to get um, an answer, or there's medical records that, that back up this concern, that would be something like a, something maybe like a pink flag. Um, another way people can can look at, at that information is people who have this type of abuse happen to them tend to get like carted around to a lot of different doctor's offices. And we see that a lot. So somebody who has an abuser who is wanting to, to show their child as a sick person, who's wanting to present their child as a sick person to the world, often takes their child to like a million different doctors and there's not sharing of records that happens. So normally if we wanna go see a specialist, you know, your primary care doctor is calling the specialist. And if that specialist wants you to go see another specialist, there's kind of like a, uh, like a line of documentation. But for somebody who is taking their child to different appointments, um, they're, they're not sharing that documentation, um, which of course gets harder and harder nowadays, um, kind of thankfully because medical information is way more likely to be shared between providers. But, you know, that's only a recent thing. It's been more in the last, you know, 10 years or so. But before that, it was really easy not to share records um, or have a paper trail between doctor's offices. So that's kind of a long way of answering that. And, and I think there's a lot more to it, but I guess to summarize, there's not a definitive way to know, but also knowing that most of the time it's unlikely. If someone's just wondering like, oh, did this happen to me? I'm not sure, likely not, but it, it could have. And it's worth talking to a therapist about it. So one of those things where your mind and your body are on the same page, you understand what is okay and what is safe. And when you have your voice and you have choices and you know your own story, I'm trying to think of neutral examples that would be mm-hmm. different than that. So like, for example, I have kids with disabilities, but they've had the same doctors all the time. Right. And when they do go to a specialist, what happens just, I don't even have to do anything, but like the records automatically go to the pediatrician. Exactly. Yes. Yes. That's a great example. Yeah. And we have their IEPs at school and they all are old enough now where it's like, I mean, this is the challenge. How do you want to meet that challenge? Does it bother you? Does it not? And so emphasizing having their voice, but then with what you're talking about is similar to other patterns of abuse in other ways in that there's secrecy, there's deception, there's shame, there's all those abuse dynamics just related to medical care specifically. Exactly right. And, and I know too, that the dynamic of kind of forcing somebody to be involved in their own abuse is not, um, it's not just something that's happening with medical abuse. So yeah, you're right. Those dynamics are something that we can see across the board with different types of abuse. Yeah. 
So with what you said earlier about therapists, that's where that, it's almost like a reenactment when it comes back up with your therapist. Is that kind of what you're talking about? I am completely. Yeah. And that, that can happen. And if you're not, if, especially if it's, it's something that a lot of people have a lot of shame about. So for a lot of survivors, and I will say myself included, I went from childhood kind of still in the same role of, of being a sick person and sometimes making up illnesses that I had or something like that. So I felt a lot of shame. I couldn't mention it for years. It was something that was just so, I didn't understand why I was doing it. You know, it, it felt like a lot of other dissociative experiences. Like it felt like somebody else was doing it and I couldn't understand why. And it took me a really long time to reconcile, you know, with a lot of family work and a lot of therapy, why this was happening and to understand that the dynamics from when I was a kid and from what I was doing as an adult were one and the same. And that was a, what was able, was, that was what was the thing that helped me to, to transition into not doing that anymore. So yeah. And I'll also say too, that I feel really honored to be able to talk about this and to be able to say that out loud with, with relatively little fear, because from what I understand, some of the research about people who, you know, adopt those patterns from childhood, they have such a low chance of being able to talk about it because of the shame, because of the stigma. And so, yeah, I, I, uh, I feel amazed that for whatever reason, I've ended up in a place where I can talk about this and I can encourage other people who are maybe stuck in this dynamic and, and too scared to come forward that like, hey, you know, we learned these dynamics in childhood and there, there can be a way out of this, so. There's so much overlap with that, with other survivors and other ways. I'm exactly. so glad you brought this into the conversation, even for healing together. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun, honestly, too. But yeah, me too. It feels like an important topic, and it feels like I, uh, yeah, I just I really care about this community. I also lead a Munchausen support group, and I call, I call it that because most people know Munchausens, but they don't know medical abuse, so they wouldn't be able to find it. But I do lead a Munchausen support group on Reddit, and I've been really touched by survivor stories there. And and so yeah, giving out this kind of information and helping with this sort of advocacy really, it means a lot to me. What has that been like for you, connecting with other survivors and supporting them and helping them? And what has the impact of your experience been relationally anyway, even besides that, like just generally? Yeah, well, to answer your first question, I would say that connecting with other survivors has been extremely healing. I have loved to not only um, put out information that I know and have gained from over the years, but also to learn new information and to hear about new experiences that people have had. Like it's, it's such a, a healing experience that is um, wonderful. And I'm just so happy to be somebody who can, who can fill that role. So, so there's that. And then relationally, I mean, it was interesting too, because beginning to talk about this with my friends when you say relationship relationally I think about kind of the people in my circle and my, my chosen family but when I started to come out with all of this to friends um, I was really just taken back by how supportive they were and how healing the whole experience was and how um, really non-judgmental that they were yeah so I just I uh, I had a good experience in that way and and that was I think because I, I have safe people in my life 
at the moment. And I know that that's not accessible to everybody, but I will just kind of put out there that I had this awesome experience relationally in terms of sharing this with others. And it's really just growing in terms of the communities that I'm able to be involved in, including this wonderful Healing Together uh, conference by an infinite mind. They were amazing. So I'm so glad you had a positive experience. What else specific to Munchausen's or medical abuse do you want to share today? Yeah, it's like, it's where to start, really. I, I think I want to just kind of come back to the the issue of, of trust and self-trust in particular. And I think that there has been uh, such a, um, there's a way where people can be really damaged by being taught not to trust themselves or to listen to their bodies or to when they're told that they're bodies are sick when they're not kind of thing. And so a lot of people will grow up um, who've had this type of abuse. They might, uh, for example, they might even have struggle to tell if they're currently ill. So that, that happened to me. I remember showing up to therapy one day and I, uh, this was years ago and I, and I was, you know, my nose was running and, and I was totally coughing and I was, I sat there with my therapist and I was like, I can't tell if I'm actually sick or not, or if, if this is just something that my body is conjuring up or if I'm making this up, if I'm making too big of a deal out of it. And so it took a long time to really get to know my body and to be able to listen to the cues that my body had for me. And so, yeah, I, I think that trust in oneself is paramount and it's something that I I would hope therapists who are listening to will really help survivors of this type of abuse connect with that sense of trust, because I think that that's, one of the, the things that are most primarily damaged by medical abuse. So that's that's one thing. That makes so much sense. And I think is another hard piece. I know we're talking in circles a little bit today, but it just correlates with everything. Like it, the pervasive impact just keeps showing up in different ways. And when I think about bodies and not trusting yourself that again goes right back to those basic abuse dynamics no matter what form it comes in yes a hundred percent and i think that this one it, it is it's it's the same thing kind of wrapped up in a different package and but the the difference maybe with this one is that there's kind of a literal element to it like there's there's literal like sometimes even people weren't just made to be sick, they might've been injured so that they were able to be presented to a doctor with an injury. So a lot of times there's like this very, uh, like literal connection with like not being able to trust if you're sick, that type of thing. So I'm having a hard time maybe putting words to this concept that I'm, that I'm trying to, to talk about, but yeah, there's, there's some just like interesting, not interesting, but like different flavor here that happens when we're talking about medical abuse. It's a specific thing. Um, either vulnerabilities already there then taken advantage of or injury added that wasn't there at all. Exactly. Yeah. And that brings me to another point too. Neglect can be a part of this experience for survivors when they were victims. So a lot of times abusers in this, this type of dynamic will neglect a person to a point where they need medical attention and then, um, you know, try to pass it off as, as not being medically neglectful. Um, so there's, there's kind of a, like a cycle of neglect and, um, this sort of like over focus on health that can happen. And I know that that's, that can be a really common dynamic too. So a lot of times it can be confusing too for a survivor when you have somebody who's really overly concerned about your health when maybe it's actually not that bad 
but then when something does go wrong, there's, there's some neglect that happens. So that, that can be a dynamic that people notice too. So, and it can be confusing when you're trying to parse out, you know, what has happened to you. It's so much to untangle. Definitely. Yeah. So I do think, uh, and I know, again, I, I'm fine talking in circles. I like circles, but, um, when I think too, just about more dynamics that can show up in a therapy setting, I think that sometimes when somebody is playing, not playing, um, I'm using words that some, some of the books I've seen have, have put out, but I would say when somebody t- is taking unknowingly the sick role in a therapeutic setting, a lot of times this can cause a therapist to kind of take the, the savior role, right? And so they might unconsciously or consciously see the, the client that they're working with as like a weak or damaged person physically or otherwise. And, and there's a way where those roles can kind of play off of one another, where, where somebody is in a sick role and the therapist doesn't know what's going on. So they're kind of stuck in this co-transference dynamic where, where they're on the other side, kind of being a savior or um, thinking that this person is, is helpless. And so I think that that's something to be aware of too, in terms of like helping a person to reach their own sense of trust and self-trust and and kind of get a better sense of of themselves and their ability to trust their body that type of thing um, it's just knowing that as therapists we fall to the risk of seeing somebody with with medical abuse as completely helpless or broken that type of thing so i think that's just it i feel like that's an important piece as well for for therapists who are listening in part it really matters to me that we train therapists about this type of abuse because because of the different flavor that I've kind of talked about that that while it has a lot of similarities with other things there's just some things we don't we, we don't know if we don't know right we wouldn't be able to recognize it as a dynamic related to this type of abuse if we don't know that that's what it is and so that's one thing I, I really feel important about putting out there so the abuse dynamic has some very clear similarities and patterns mm-hmm. but the impact is very unique and specific because the experience is so unique and specific. Right, absolutely, yeah. I One thing that I think is important to mention too is that there's a, just like, again, you know, a lot of other types of abuse have this very very same sort of outcome, but I do know that there's, there's some scant research that seems to strongly suggest that folks who have this type of abuse, and again, this is primarily happening between mothers and children, but there's a big, big overlap between, you know, estrangement and people who have to set really strong boundaries up to and including no contact with their parents or parents and this community. Like there's a, there's like a, um, like I said, a strong overlap. So um, a lot of people um, who have been through this, they end up kind of having a, being in a situation where they're putting up strong boundaries and, and maybe gravitating towards chosen family and friends, that type of thing. But a lot of people do have um, struggles keeping in contact with their family. And I say struggles, and for some people it's struggles, and some people it's like this really empowering choice. There's, and sometimes it's both. But yeah, I, I think that's important to say too, that, that that does happen a lot. This One of the impacts of this, this, this abuse is that it does really hurt families and family relationships. And again, just like any other type of abuse, there are gonna be people in families that may or may not believe what's happened. And there's people who um, like outright don't believe or, or believe or, or whatever it is. But the, the point is a lot of times there's, there's impacts on the family system. It feels like 
Well, when I reflect on what you've just shared, it seems like that would make so much sense just intuitively when the invasion is literally your body, which does happen with other kinds of abuse, but this is also the kind of invasion that includes that relational betrayal where reality is not actually real and emotionally and even your identity and that that also would make me think and clarify for me because I don't want to make assumptions but it makes me think also that there would be like entire areas of development that could be missed that you would have to catch up and so like how would you even know even who you were which to me goes back to your bio that is so clear this is who I am which is just reflective even more of healing when you consider that that's what this kind of abuse does. Yeah, I am so glad you brought that up. So it's like, there's like three things that I'm, I'm like, whoa, this thing and this thing and that thing, all these things I could talk about. But let me say, first of all, that this is uh, strictly a hypothesis of mine since research about this does not exist. But I think it's a, it's a pretty strong one, which is to say that I think that we can we can safely say that um, since this type of abuse occurs mostly for infants and toddlers, right? This is the key developmental phase, kind of like as you're saying. And so when there's this strong intrusion of body and soul, and all these things are happening, and it's happening chronically and to varying degrees of severity, I, I can see how. And this uh, again, the betrayal element that you that you uh, recognized as well. I can see how something like this would act, would um, lend itself and lead to dissociative experiences um, because there's this way where folks are, when they're so young and they're going through these constant medical experiences and if there's the betrayal element, that it could definitely cause some internal division and, and these adaptive ways of learning to survive such an incident. And so I think that's important too, that, that this developmental component, it is something that's happening when people are really young. And so I can see how that might lead to something like DID, if not chronic PTSD, that type of thing. Yeah. And then there's so much more to go, go through there too. And I'm kind of like, like a little bit ahead of myself, but <laughs> yeah, I, I also really love, um, so one of the things I talked about at my presentation is people who have medical abuse happen to them, they often have so many different narratives placed upon them. And that could be by the abuser who is, who is you know, saying like, you're sick or whatever they might be saying. They might be, uh, maybe have run into doctors who are like, are you faking this? Are you a faker? Or even people in their community. And again, as I said, a lot of people who go through this type of abuse, they naturally end up Uh, repeating these dynamics and so they might bring it even into their adulthood so they might be called liars and fakers by other people and as an art therapist which I I could talk for a long time about that too I really love uh, doing art therapy and and being an art therapy intern but I I really appreciate narrative art therapy because one of the principal or one of the main uh, focuses of art therapy and, and narrative art therapy is to really help people tell their own stories about themselves and and so that's been a big deal for me too in my own journey is like learning to tell my own story and describe myself in ways that I want to be described as, um, which I think kind of touches on the, the profile that, that you were talking about. Like I, that's been a big part of my healing is learning to 
refer to myself in ways that are my story and my narrative about myself and, and not others. There's just so much in here and so much to unpack. Okay, we have to ask, tell us about art therapy. Okay, so art therapy is pretty amazing. There's, it can be a really awesome way. And I know that you, you do your own art and I've heard, and and I think I've even seen some of that looking at um, online sometimes, but I, it can be such a way to help make meaning around experiences for which there are no words. And I, I'm betting that a lot of people who use art journaling or just love doing art, um, they, they know what I'm talking about. There's this way of taking things that are really hard to talk about or just don't have words, even if it's a, a good topic, like, like something that makes us feel positive. A lot of times we don't even have words for that. And so doing some art can really help us to find perspective and find ways to describe or understand things that are hard to put into words. So I really love art therapy for that. I also, part of the, the program that I'm in, one of the, the big, the, how do I say this? Like the, something that's really important is making sure that it's, it's accessible to everyone and or most people. And so I, as I am working with clients, I find that oftentimes a stick figure drawing can have just as much power and meaning and intensity to it as some, something that somebody spent, you know, a half an hour on or, or two hours or whatever. So yeah, there's, I, I really love art therapy that it can be accessible. We can change materials if, if someone doesn't like the materials or if they're not accessible to them for some reason, there's just so much and so many ways that it can be adaptive. The other thing that I really love about art therapy is that there can be this sense of containment and gentleness. So while kind of having a talk conversation, like, like a, a conversation that is all talking with like a therapist. A lot of times that person is a complete stranger, especially if we're talking about the first several sessions or weeks or months or years. Um, Sometimes they still feel like strangers, but (laughs) right. So sometimes uh, sitting and having that conversation can be really intimidating. Um, Sometimes it can be triggering, um, especially, but for any number of reasons, really. Um, And doing art though has a way of, it can be self-directed where you're really um, usually only drawing something that, that, um, that you're capable of drawing in the moment or that like is is accessible to you emotionally. And there's other ways of containment, like even just drawing a box around something that's hard or putting it in an envelope. Like there's a lot of ways that we can, if something does become activating or really hard to work with in terms of art, there's so many ways that we can care for it that, that can just be really supportive to a person and um, maybe less activating than, than simply talking about something. So yeah, there's so many things uh, that I love about art therapy. I love that. We have done a lot of art. Yes, we've got some that really like art. And sometimes that is specific things. It also just shows up, not just in an art journal, but like in regular journaling, there's always these random sketches or pictures showing up. Very relatable. We also have done difficult expressions of hard things for therapy that we have literally done what you said of like getting this out enough we can breathe and then putting it in an envelope and we have these stacks of art envelopes everywhere that's just full of really grotesque or difficult things but they're not in me they're not in me yes yeah yeah, art therapy can really help with externalization, um, which is a big fancy word for just kind of taking what's in your head, just like you said, and bringing it out and, and putting it somewhere else. So journaling does something very similar, just like with, with in like writing. 
But art therapy has been shown to have maybe a little bit more of a release in that way. So yeah, and then there's all sorts of ways that we can find that containment. Like like you said, um, either putting it away somewhere safe and tucked away or, or asking the elements to help us in some way. So if that might, for some people that means like burning a piece of paper or, um, you know, washing away tiny chunks of it or something. So um, there's all sorts of ways that we can find containment through artwork that and also um, like artistically like like I said drawing a box around something or scribbling something on top of something these are all ways where we can find healthy containment. What has it been like for you so far and I know you are doing your internship now but what has it been like for you so far to be a clinician with lived experience who is out about that experience in appropriate ways? Yeah I mean it's been an adventure (laughs) I'll say that it's been a journey because, you know, at first it was really, really, really scary. It did not come without risks. And, you know, I'm lucky to be in a community and in a locale and a lot of different things where this is the dissociation and dissociative experiences are more talked about and in an area where differing identities are, are accepted. So when I identify as they, them, that's not really questioned here. So, so identifying as plural is kind of just like another step after that. And so, I don't know, I've been really lucky in that way, but it has not come without complete terror sometimes and not knowing what's going to happen if I put myself out there. But the reality has been that um, people, clients and and my supervisors and um, coworkers, things like that, um, they've all been really accepting and most people have had like a friendly curiosity at times. But overall, I found that it's connected me to to people who have similar experiences and wouldn't have otherwise talked about it. And yeah, it's it's really a, it's been scary at times and, but I'm finding like I'm, I'm having more and more benefits of being able to say like, yeah, I have associative experiences and I, I'm plural and I have these different versions of me and these different parts and ways of being. And that's just who I am. And I don't know, there's, it's a strange time to, to be out about that since there is kind of like like what we're talking about with medical abuse. There's a lot of narrative out there about people with DID as fakers or um, you know doing that for attention, which I can't even imagine. But yeah, so I it, it's a scary time sometimes to be out, but at the same time, that's also meaning that there's more support and more places that we can go. And just like at this conference where we could all come together and I don't know and, and just have this sense of belonging, and and that wasn't a possibility. I don't know, for me, even just three years ago, um, and I know that it's, it's uh, I don't know, it's, it, it's this kind of newer thing. So I'm really thankful for places and spaces that I can go and, and just be myself. I appreciate that so much because it is an example of doing the work to be yourself, even when that's wrestling with the risk or wrestling with who am I and navigating parts or self-states and right. your your example of going from the impact of Munchausen's to that bio, I'm so caught up in that bio because it was so powerful. And being able to just say, this is me and standing, standing in that space that is yourself, whatever that means and all the layers of that and the risk and the vulnerability and the complications and not that it's even all settled, but to be able to express yourself 
is so so powerful and I think the way you described that of the work of getting to that place is different than just this part presents this or fawning depending on your environment this is no this is who I am all the time even though also we have DID and it's something I have been asking for over a year because one of the things the husband says all the time is I am who I am all the time like I'm just me and he doesn't have DID and he talks about that but it's brought up a lot of questions and it's been a big year for us therapeutically in lots of ways and lots of changes in our family but in that context of asking these questions how do I even know what the pieces are to put together and how do I even find the pieces of okay I've made some progress it's not just about being DID or plural or this or that and wrestling with when is it okay or is it not I was talking about plurality this weekend with people because of the conference and there are some ways I really don't want to identify with plural because this has happened or this has happened or this has happened. But also I am plural, like lowercase plural by default, right? And so how do I come to terms with that or, or claim that? And the work that goes into that, that you can't just be that. And I think sometimes, especially people who are new to the podcast or new to therapy or new to healing together, think or get overwhelmed by I don't know how to do what you're doing or be who you're being it's like no 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 you just have to be yourself and along the way of healing those pieces start to fall into place where they do belong and yes it is untangling and you know like on the podcast therapy trauma took us three years to figure out what happened the last year has taken an entire year with six months of off from the podcast to be able to entangle like sexuality and oh religious trauma is a thing and these kinds of things it takes time and it takes work and so when people say why are we still talking about this thing when are we moving on in the podcast well I don't know because it takes time and if I could fake it for you and just be like wrap things up in a bow it would certainly make my life easier But that's just not how it works. It's all this work that is the work of healing. When we talk about integration, it's not about this part and this part, like getting sandwiched together into your one piece of sandwich. It's this of I can be this and this and this and this, and I know this is who I am. Yeah. Yeah. And and then that's okay. And I think that, I mean, I think it's so amazing that you have this sort of chronological journey, you know, by way of podcast, um, where you've been able to look back on your healing and and you can kind of show it as this journey. And I also want to echo what you're saying too, that, you know, sometimes you just have to stay with something until you're ready to move past it. Like it's kind of the the image that comes to mind is like, sometimes you have to chew on something until you're ready to swallow it and, and forever, however long that takes for it to be safe and for it to be, um, natural and good for you. That that makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, I uh, I also would say that you know t- back in 2020, if you asked me if I would be able to say these things out loud and and um, to make sense of some of these things, I don't think I would have believed you, or I, w- I don't think I would have uh, said yes that that would be possible. And so um, it really is so hard when you're in the midst of things and when you're in the dark night of the soul part of the journey 
to believe or to even be able to conceive of what it looks like for light to enter and for things to to get better or to to start to make sense um yeah that's really 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 tough and that part of healing is creating the space and finding like you said finding spaces with others or community where where you can do that work a hundred percent yeah we're not meant to do this alone Okay, follow-up question on medical abuse that has come to me. Yeah. One of the things that's a hot topic in the community is how DID is portrayed in movies and television or film. Yeah. At at Healing Together, Holly and her son Dylan presented Petals of a Rose. So just following up on that, I I, I have the question for you. What do you think about the way that medical abuse has been portrayed. Obviously, they talk about it as Munchausen's in film and television, but what do you think about that? What has that been like for survivors of that specific abuse? Yes, I love this question. Love this question. So I, that's, that's something that I have noticed and have thought about as well. And um, it was something I considered um, kind of going into detail at the present, at the conference, but I really wanted to try to keep the material as as kind of accessible and and so as many people uh as many of a person's parts can be there as possible without feeling like they had to to leave or be um, completely overwhelmed but i will say just as a general way of answering the question most of the media and shows and, and things that are out there that depict this type of abuse are of course just like shows and tv and, and movies about um, did they're super sensationalized in a way that I would say is directly hurtful to to victims of this type of abuse. So for example, a lot of times um, in in shows that depict this type of abuse, it's just, it's really overblown or it's like um, turned into like an action action adventure and it's supposed to be this like like thriller type of thing. And so I think that um, it, it paints this type of abuse into one type of corner so people are like oh that's what this is when maybe that's actually the the very 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 fringe of of the act of what this abuse actually looks like so yeah i think it also tends to paint survivors as like i said before super broken or just super like perma damaged like they're they're never gonna get better things are not gonna be okay like this type of abuse breaks a person is kind of the narrative and so I, it hurts my heart to see that because I think that that is so far from the truth and um, could be really activating and demoralizing to um, a survivor watching that play out on TV. So there, there's so many more things to say about that, but overall, yeah, I think it's so sensationalized and it and also just really does not do good things for advocacy and for other people's understanding of survivor's experience. Seeing ourselves reflected only only as victims right or as helpless or not going to get better feels so heavy and like another kind of reenactment of you're you're telling me who i am or who i'm not who i cannot be and so to consider the idea that part of healing is figuring out who i am and holding space to do the work to become myself, but also part of healing is holding space for the idea that I am well, that 
I can be okay, that I am not just safe, but healthy and well. What does that look like for you? For a long time, it looked like affirmations and reminding myself that I am well, because I know sometimes for survivors, there can be you know, that tendency to, to worry about, oh no, am I, am I getting sick again? And that's genuine um, because of the confusion that's been caused. So, so a lot of my experience has been a lot of affirmations of like, actually, no, I'm not sick right now. Um, I'm healthy. And if I do become ill, I'm going to take good care of myself. And I have good, I have good people around me who will help me with that. So, yeah, I think that it's a big thing and it's kind of something I feel like I'm still sort of getting to know is this idea of like, oh yeah, like I'm okay and I am well. That's a, yeah, it's a, it's a lot to process. And there's always that fear in the background of like, oh, but when's that going to stop or, or will that stop? And, you know, I'm, I'm handling those parts of me who with those fears with, with the utmost of gentle care and oh, sweetheart, I hear you. Like, yeah, that is scary. And I'm here for you. It's going to be okay. No matter what happens. That's interesting because it makes me curious about how to make that or create that. I like create better than make in that way. How to create that into my own affirmation, sort of open-ended of I am well because, or I am well enough because I'm sort of looking at the evidence of that as opposed to only trying to talk myself into something that I don't yet feel or experience. Yeah, because those are different things, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Anything else that you wanted to share or talk about today? What came to mind was just um, kind of along the lines of what we're talking about. I really love the idea of um, people getting to know what it means to create their own narratives and labels and to be able to say, nope, that, that label isn't me or that labels me today, but now it's not, uh, you know, like next day, well, nope, that's something else. And for that to be okay. And for us to start to shed some of the narratives and labels that have been placed upon us, which could be all sorts of things. It could be parts of our identity, you know, our um, any, anything intersectional in terms of our, our race, our sex, our gender, anything, anything like that. It can look like all sorts of things. But um, in the end, I think what matters is that we're able to, we learn and, and grow over time in such a way where we start to um, make our own narratives and use our own words of describing ourselves and our experiences. And I, I wish that for, for everybody who, who struggles with that, who, or who have, put, have had labels put placed on them, been placed on them. I love the idea of the fluidity of that, of trying out different labels, seeing what fits now, what doesn't fit now, and, and that being an ongoing process not just something I have to check off and settle into. Yeah, there's kind of more empowerment and freedom and choice implied there. I love that so much. Anything else? You know, I'm just really appreciative of this time, and uh, it's such a, a really awesome and fun and amazing thing to be able to get to, to be here and talk to you openly about plurality and DAD and um, Munchausen's abuse, medical abuse. Like, it's, a, it's absolutely... I'm just like so floored that I get to do this and, and so excited. And um, I've really appreciated the way that you're able to ask questions and, and dig deeper. And um, yeah, and, and once again, too, I, I just loved hearing your journey. And I know that I am not the only one that has been inspired by your work and by your vulnerability and willingness to put these things out here. So 
thanks again for that and, and for this time today. It's, it's been lovely talking with you and getting to know you a little bit. That was very kind and very generous and has been a weekend I needed to hear it. Thank you. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Yeah, it's true. It's genuine. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. Thank you so much for talking to us. Yes. Thank you. And I hope you have a great weekend. Thank you for listening. Your support really helps us feel less alone while we sort through all of this and learn together. Maybe it will help you in some ways too. You can connect with us on Patreon by going to our website at www.systemspeak.org. If there's anything we've learned, it's that connection brings healing. We look forward to connecting with you.